The American family needs reform. This is an issue about which even a deeply divided America agrees. Across the political spectrum, everyone agrees that the American family is fractured and needs reform. For example, William Bennett, uh, a Republican, wrote something in the New York Times that I copied into our notes. If you look in your bulletin you got when you came in, look on the left-hand side there of the notes and you'll read this. William Bennett said, for a civilization to succeed, the family must succeed, and right now it's not. If we have stronger families, we will have stronger schools, stronger churches, stronger communities with less poverty and less crime. The family is the linchpin of society, both economically and socially, close quote. Senior Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat, was asked what he had seen change during his long years of public service, and he said this, the biggest change, in my judgment, is that the family structure has come apart all over the North Atlantic world. Family structures come apart all over the North Atlantic world. You ready for the wildest part of that quote? Moynihan said that 20 years ago. 20 years ago. What would he say today? You see, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan was bemoaning the state of the family, he was especially bothered, the full interview, he was bothered that 35% of American children were born without married parents. And he was horrified that that number had grown from 5% when he entered the United States Senate. Today, that number is almost 50%. Why does that matter? Charles Murray, a libertarian, trying to cover the whole spectrum here, he wrote an influential book called Coming Apart, in which he said this, and I quote, one of the great secrets of wealth is the practice of what are called traditional family values. Men and women who get married, stay married, and have children within marriage are more likely to be in and stay in the middle or upper class. There are exceptions. There are some great and successful single parents and some awful two-parent families. But most of the time, it works best with, yes, a mother, a father, and children, close quote. I don't have time to go into all the research that he quotes. It's very compelling. I agree with him. In fact... I think that much of the stagnation in the United States economy over the last number of years is attributable directly to the breakdown of the nuclear family, because that is true. I didn't get a quote from a Green Party leader, but I think you get the drift, right? Everyone recognizes that families in our land need to become more healthy. It must start now, and it must start with us. Listen, it is not just some collection of families out there that are in need of reform. Nearly every person studying with me, whether it's here or online or via the radio, values marriage. Nearly everyone studying with me today values children and extended family. But you know what we do? We tend to blindly and lazily assume that everything is fine with our familial relationships. The problem is always with somebody else's family. And that attitude sets us up to stop reforming, stop growing, and just coast along with a broken culture. Friends, the American culture is rushing. It's not just coasting. It is rushing straight off the cliffs of insanity, all right? And if we don't continually reform our nuclear and our extended family relationships, we're going to join the culture broken on the rocks below, unemployed in Greenland. And it is not just the world. You like that? It was just for you. It's not just the world that fights against our families. You know this, right? Our own flesh causes huge problems in every family. Our own sin nature causes problems, not to mention how the Bible clearly says the devil and his demons work against us and against our families. I was discussing this with a friend of mine, 
and uh, we were talking about this very topic, and he jotted down a quick list of current threats to the family. I thought it was so good, I asked him if I could have it after our conversation. Here's what he wrote down. He said, Wayne, these are what I see as the threats to the modern American family. Overwork or inability to find work. Deadbeat dads. Distracted moms. Pornography in its various diffuse forms. Horrible killer of familial relationships. Entitlement thinking the acceptance of divorce within the broader society, diminution of the value of marriage through radical agendas, that's a really big one these days, lack of connection to grandparents and movies, music, etc. that demean the family. So let's take a quick survey. If you have felt the effects of any of these, you, you have felt them in your, in your home or in your extended family, raise your hand. You felt the effects of any of these in your family, raise your hand really high, let me see them all. Okay, all right, thank you. As I said, nearly everyone. As I said before, everyone recognizes that families in our land need to become more healthy, and we are going to show them how. Humbly, starting with our own homes, we are going to lead a reformation movement of the American family. All God's people said? Amen. Let's begin by learning from some of what Scripture has to say about the family. First, we learn in the Scripture that building a family is honorable work. Open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 31, Proverbs, uh, just before you get to Ecclesiastes, last chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 31 is describing the traits of a godly woman, starting in verse 13, we learn this, she selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She, she's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from far away, she rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and portions for her female servants. Stop there. There's a great deal more, but I just want to focus on this aspect of God's kind of family member. She or he, other passages say all these traits are true of males as well, does hard work. Do you see all the work in that passage? And, and the labor is clearly more than just physical. The, the, the physical is merely a representation of a life that is committed to making a strong and healthy family. That, that's why the text goes on to describe the health of her home. Go, go down. Go past all the physical work traits down to verse 25. Okay, go to verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she can laugh at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. This is someone who is dedicated to blessing her family. And, and in the Israeli village context, you know, this was written in in the Israeli village and city context. That blessing extended far beyond just her typical four-room house. It included, in Israeli villages, this text includes an extended clan of interconnected family and neighbors. The hard work expended by this Proverbs 31 woman changes her world. It changes the world, and it's honorable work. That's why the chapter closes this way. Go to verse 28, end of the chapter. Her sons rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women are capable, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. The reward of her labor seems to be the praise of her family. It likely also includes the praise of others, these many she supports and instructs, according to the entire chapter. And the praise is very public. Where did it say the praise happens? Where is it? In what, everybody? In the gates. It doesn't get more public than the gates of a Hebrew village. The gate of an Iron Age city is very, very hard for us to understand. Here's the best way I can think of to put it. The gate of an Iron Age city was like a modern stock exchange internet, and law court all rolled into one. 
okay? Stock exchange, internet, and law court all into one. So, so what is this saying to us? When you do the hard work to build a strong, interconnected family, that work is often very private, just as the text says. It's often late night and early morning labor. But the effects become very visible. They become a tangible blessing that positively impact the wider world. Notice also the nifty Hebrew parallel thought in verses 30 and 31. Remember, Hebraic writers love to point out important points by putting them in parallel. So look at the parallel. When someone fears the Lord, verse 30, they are to be praised. In verse 31, this lady is praised because she labored for a strong family. Right? Therefore, the text is telling us that building healthy families is an important expression of fearing God. If you claim to fear God, that is, you trust Yahweh, you live in awe and respect of Him, then you must labor for your family. These two things are tied together in the logic of God's Hebrew parallel. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 5 carries this idea into the Greco-Roman world, a different world, with this statement. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are, are worse than unbelievers. Building a healthy family is honorable work. It's an important expression of God's ministry in the world. Those who neglect their family duties, even if they are Christians, that erode the work of the Lord in a dark and needy world. Every culture, every people group throughout history has recognized the importance of the family. Everyone has. And yet, this is fascinating. Almost every one of those cultures actually develops practices and prejudices that harm the family they need. It is an amazing, horrible truth throughout history. Nearly every culture recognizes that it needs healthy families and then devises cultural mores that actually fight against that family. For example, let's just consider our culture. I want to share with you three current, I could do more, three current norms, three mores in American culture that fight against family health. Probably foremost today is the dishonor of living on less. Here's what's happened. The, the striving of our forefathers' work ethic has come into today gutted of all its contentment. And, and this leaves people ashamed when they can't keep up with the Joneses, when they don't have stuff. I want you to listen to another important observation. This one's also from Mr. Murray that we quoted earlier. He said this in his book. A man who is holding down a menial job and thereby supporting wife and children is doing something authentically important with his life. He should take deep satisfaction from that and be praised by his community for doing so. If this same man lives under a system that says the children of the woman he sleeps with will be taken care of whether or not he contributes, then that status goes away. I'm not describing a theoretical outcome, but American neighborhoods where once working in a menial job to provide for his family made a man proud and gave him status in his community, and where now it doesn't. Close quote. That's modern America, and modern America is wrong. There is no dishonor in living on less. The only dishonor is in not taking care of your family needs as best as possible under God's sovereign hand. This is why I am proud of not being able to travel much anymore. I, I miss traveling and speaking. I miss traveling around the world speaking. But staying here to care for our disabled son is a blessing. And I am not ashamed. I am rather honored to give up things that I used to want in order to best care for my family. It is a blessing. America's wrong. 
Another cultural moor that harms families is our current discrimination against the stay-at-home spouse. And this is serious. My, my wife one time stopped, was stopped in a grocery store during the day, and a very obnoxious woman said to my wife, and I quote, Why are you just shopping? You should be working and contributing to society. No praise in the gates there, right? By the way, Jana, Jana looked at her, and she said, she said something like, I am contributing. I, um, I'm giving rude people a target for their inane opinions. A third current Western expression that fights God's view is the tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure. We just saw it displayed this last week. Tremendous pressure on a single woman to have an abortion. As, as, as if children were somehow a dishonorable nuisance. It's heinous evil, men and women, and it is conducted and couched in Orwellian lies like choice and safe when it represents neither. Building a healthy family is honorable work. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and Christians must especially fight the ridiculous nonsense of an unbelieving world that needs the family, needs your family, but always fights against it. The right side of our notes contain the next big idea I find in Scripture. Healthy family requires training. That's the idea developed in the beloved uh, verse, Proverbs 22.6. Go back to the West in your Bible just a ways, a few pages over to Proverbs 22. And uh, let's read verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Teach a youth about the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Personally, I love the cadence of the older New American Standard translation. In fact, why don't you read it with me? Uh, let's read the NASB all together, just line by line. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Thank you. Now, please, don't make that into a promise. Okay, that's, it's not a promise. That's not how literature like Proverbs is intended. It is a statement of the norm, okay? And the norm is that well-trained people tend to stay with the wisdom of their training even as they make it their own. The point in the Bible is the training, not the results. Results are in God's hands as He allows humans to make choices as part of His sovereignty. But families must train. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins must do their part to impart wisdom to every new member of the clan. And that means we need to make time for it regularly. When almost all of our meals are in front of the TV, or we never make time to really talk together, or we're always on our phones, guess what that means? It means family training cannot happen. It can't. Listen, Moses' definitive command on this, Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses said, imprint these words of mine, talking about the Scripture, on your hearts and minds. Bind them as a sign on your hands. Let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Train. Every aspect of life is a learning opportunity that should be seized. However, there's a terrible truth you need to know about training. It's found, it's found in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, possibly the most sobering verse in the entire Bible. Luke 6, 40 says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. We all influence people, and, and Jesus reminds us that those we lead will become, ready? Wait for it. Here's the awful truth. They become like us. Therefore, our first commitment must be what? To train ourselves. Parents, teachers, bosses, family, listen up. You and I cannot pass on something we don't possess. 
We must train ourselves. We cannot pass on something we don't possess, but we will always pass on what we do possess. I remember the day that this crashed off the Bible page and into my heart. Saturday afternoon. I'm watching football. My two-year-old daughter is in the room with me. She wants to watch football, too, with Daddy, which is maybe the greatest love language she could express to her Daddy. And uh, she's playing with some toys on the floor, and, uh, and the football game's on. And all of a sudden, there's very loud. The parabolic mic must have picked it up just right. There's a very loud whistle, and, and she hears the voice of Keith Jackson say, Whoa, Nelly, there's a flag on the play. Okay, that's right. Whistle, flag on the play. Immediately. Pavlov's dog reaction. Immediately, the kid jumps up, runs over to the TV and goes, Oh, come on, you idiot. <laughs> she didn't learn that from her mom. <laughs> That's what I was training. Of course, I, I know what you're thinking. In your best, best Keith Jackson imitation, you're asking, Whoa, Nelly, then what should be the goal of our training? Thank you for asking. Excellent question. The simple summary answer is given by God in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. He, Hebrews 5 is a chapter devoted to training. It's all about maturing. And the author concludes with this statement. Solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Discernment. That's our big goal. We don't train what to think, but rather we train how to think. We, we teach ourselves, we teach others how to filter, how to tell good from mediocre from bad. Now, that takes us to one last thought about training. It may take more work the longer you live. And I know this sounds funny because you would think you could, you could build on your training, and you can, but here's the truth. We, we tend to coast. You see, training, especially training myself, gets harder the more I mature because I tend to coast on my past efforts. An acquaintance of mine uh, brilliantly compares spiritual discipline, training, with keeping off weight. And he argues that each of them becomes tougher and tougher the older you get. Listen to this. Tim Hawes, he says this. He says, as a youth, I could eat the burger basket, a slice of pie, and a package of Oreos and have all those calories burned up within 30 minutes. Today, I gained three pounds just walking through the cookie section at Walmart. <laughs> You don't gain that extra 10 pounds after one meal. It's a gradual thing. You get used to feeling bloated, uncomfortable. Things can slowly pile up, and they can slowly fade away. I also find, Tim says, this is true in my spiritual life. We get busy in the everyday things of life and don't notice the slow fade away from time spent with God. Most of us don't make a conscious decision to stop praying, stop reading our Bible, stop attending church, stop caring for others. It starts slowly, gradually, imperceptibly. Next thing you know, we're out of the loop with God, our family, our neighbors, and ourselves, close quote. The world needs, and each of us needs, to train ourselves as part of strong families. After all, do you know what families can do? Healthy families can break negative cycles. That's the teaching in Psalm 78. We keep going to the West today, so go a little further to the West, back to Psalm 78. Uh, let's read Asaph's brilliant notes. Uh, Asaph says this, Psalm 78, we'll pick it up in verse 1. A masculine of Asaph. My people hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known and that our fathers have passed down to us. We must not hide them from their children, but must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord, his might, the wonderful works he's performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know 
they were to rise and tell their children so they might put their confidence in God and not forget his works, not forget God's works, but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The hard training of a family changes the future. The honorable work of building strong marriages, building strong homes, extended families, it truly makes all the difference. How many of you, look, look at verse 8. How many of you observed at least one trait in your parents that wasn't healthy? Uh, wait, let's do this. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever witnessed anything at all unscriptural in your parents. Uh, raise your hand. Go, they know. They're right there. It's not a surprise to them, I promise. Yeah, that's right. Okay, all right, hands down. Thank you. You see, the reality is even wonderful Christian families contain what the psalm describes. Look what the psalm describes. Stubbornness, rebellion, disloyalty, a lack of focus on God. Now, remember the Mosaic law that Asaph describes was never intended to justify people before God. Salvation has always been by God's grace alone through faith alone. But God's words in His law, His words on right and wrong, the testimonies about His greatness can be passed on in a marriage, in a home, through an extended family. And while it doesn't save any individual soul, that information does reform society. Cycles are hard to break. We know that. The, the Bible says so. We see it every day. For example, how many of us who raised our hands about our parents' sins can answer this question? Do you ever see signs in yourself of the same unhealthy trait that you observed in your parents? In fact, let's just, let's just raise our hands. If, if you've noticed the tendency in yourself to continue that negative cycle you saw in your parents, raise your hands. Yeah, it's hard. Friends, let me encourage you. You should know that God can and does break such negative cycles. He replaces them with positive reinforcement. We see it all the time. We see it in the Scripture. Our, our church missionary, Dan Bolin, recently wrote a great piece on this. In fact, it's so good, I just want to read it to you in its entirety. Dan wrote, and he said, Asher's family was a mess. His father, Jacob, had four wives. Together, the mothers produced 12 sons, at least one daughter, but not all the wives were equals. Two of the mothers were rival sisters, and the other two were their servants. But the plot's even more complicated. Jacob loved one of the sisters more than the other, creating jealousy, anger, and conflict. So where did Asher fit in? He happened to be the youngest son of the servant girl of the unloved sister, all right? You could not find yourself on a more unenviable spot in the social pecking order than this. But Asher was not defeated by his difficult beginning. Even though he was born into tough circumstances, and despite some bad choices he made along the way, he seems to have finished well. When Jacob came to the end of his life, he saved one of his richest blessings for Asher. Moses later expands the blessing, saying, and a quote here from Deuteronomy 33, um, about Asher, he said, most blessed of sons is Asher. Let him be favored by his brothers. Let him bathe his feet in oil. The bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze, and your strength will equal your days. Asher's blessing included good relationships, prosperity, security, strength for his entire life. Despite a difficult family background, Asher seemed to have overcome the challenges and surpassed expectations. And Dan closes with this. Very good word to every one of us. Don't allow the challenging circumstances of your past to limit or diminish your future. God's grace is bigger than any baggage you may carry, and His love is sufficient to fill any hole in your heart. Amen? One final point on why it is so important to continually reform our family relationships. Healthy family doesn't merely break negative cycles. It also, get this, it also can perpetuate positive ones. 
This is, this is really cool. It can perpetuate blessings. One more passage. Last time I'll make you turn, okay? Uh, this time we'll go back to the east. Psalm 102, uh, the very end of Psalm 102. Let's read Psalm 102, 27 and 28. Speaking to God, the psalmist says, But you're the same, and your years will never end. Your servants' children will dwell securely, and their offspring will be established before you. Again, this is not a promise of perfection in this life. And by the way, Psalm 102 is not paganism either. You know, paganism is where you follow some magic formula and the deity has to provide what you signed up for. That's not it. Actually, this psalm begins with a cry of pain. Look, in the Hebrew songbook, here's the notation that begins Psalm 102. A prayer of an afflicted person who is weak and pours out his lament before the Lord. Psalm 102 is about pain. And it teaches the pained person to turn to the Lord. Doing so, the pained person's changed and receives a great blessing. Look at the blessing. It's in verse 27 and 28. That afflicted person learns to look ahead. Inspired of God, the psalmist says, look ahead and be astonished at the power of what God is doing in your family. All those little things you do, keeping up with your relatives, training your kids in chores when it would be so much easier to just give in. Spending personal time in the Scripture, spending family time in the Scripture, working every day on your marriage. Those things matter, and they can change the future for generations to come. The psalmist wants you, the psalmist wants me to look ahead. God knows it's hard. Family's hard. But our hard work, empowered by the Lord, establishes a positive future. Nikola Tesla was a very hardworking genius. If you don't know him, look him up. Not right now. Look him up later. When you look him up, you're going to be amazed at how much this man has impacted your life. And Nikola Tesla looked ahead. He, he saw a little of what his hard work could accomplish. You're going to be amazed by this. This is an interview from Collier's Magazine. Get the date. January 30, 1926. Look at what Nikola Tesla said. When wireless is perfectly applied... The whole earth will be converted into a huge brain. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. We shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face-to-face -face despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments, he goes on, through which we'll be able to do this will be amazingly simple. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. Close quote. That is a vision of the future seen almost 100 years ago. And that's what we need to keep in mind, especially through all the hard days. We need to remember why we do all the hard work of being a healthy family member. To keep their eyes on the prize, some of my friends have developed what they call a family vision. Uh, it's usually a simple page. It's, it's often framed and, and hung on the wall. It's just a reminder of this family's biblical vision. It's a reminder of... of of Psalm 102. For example, here's one. Friends of mine, this is theirs. This hangs in their living room wall. Family mission statement. As a family, we will strive to be honest in our dealings with those around us, and we will demonstrate integrity in all that we do. We will treat others as we would like to be treated. We will provide meaningful service to others. We will enjoy and appreciate the blessings of life. We will achieve this by putting the Lord first in our lives. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this is the core values of a family. They took their core values and they got Scrabble pieces and they glued a Scrabble board together and hung it on the wall of their living room. And it says, we are explorers, creative, patient, loving, kind, generous, uh, honest uh, leaders, and I can't read the other two. Isn't that cool? 
Uh, had a guy walk up to me after last service, and he said, we're going to do that. I'm very excited. Ours is going to say, try not to suck. That was really good. Um, <laughs> some folks I know have much longer ones than that. In fact, I know a couple of families that have whole constitutions, like four-page-long constitutions. Whatever you choose to do, if you do this, a brief vision statement like this can be a great tool. It can, it can do Psalm 102. It can keep the goal in mind. Stay focused on the fact that your family can perpetuate blessings. You, as a member of a family, can perpetuate blessings. All right, let's get really personal with all this. I want to ask my friend Greg to come up. Uh, Greg McClure, there you are, Greg. Greg and I were talking about all this, and, uh, and he said some things that just really, really touched me, and I asked him to come up and share with you. It's very brave of him and very kind of him to do this. Um, Greg, take a seat. And, um, okay, let's start with your family. You and I were talking about your family, how you were raised in a home that feared the Lord. Your, your family feared the Lord. What specific things about that made an impression on you as you grew up? Um, I mean, there are a lot of things, but for the sake of time, right. if we just want to focus on one, it would be uh, my dad. Mm. I had a dad who was very involved in my life. Um, not, not the take you to a baseball game kind of involved. That's great. Right. Um, but no, I mean, he was, he was always willing to engage me spiritually and emotionally. Um, he has discipled me himself. He has held me and wept with me when I was hurting. And he has met me head on when it was time to have a fight. Never mean, never nosy, never overbearing, just, just aware of how hard it is to try to grow up during that time and master your own space. Yeah. He was approach was always was always right it seemed like um, he is actually here hey dad no way. yeah hi dad i haven't seen him Lovely. in a while but i watched him he was a pastor like you and i yeah. watched him have to to deal with all of my problems the church's problems other people's problems the rest of my siblings and i know it's exhausting and i know it's tiring um, but he always did it because he had a firm belief that there was this life that had been broken and poured out for him, and his responsibility was then to turn around and pour himself out for other people. And I think that made a larger impression on me than anything growing up. I, I would think so. Okay, so there, that, that is a core of the healthy family, a recognition of his weakness that he has met in the Lord and that he's to pour himself out for somebody else, in this case, you. All right, so, so let's go back to when you're first dating Kristen. Okay, you're, you're incredible, amazing sweetheart. You're first dating Kristen. How did that background, being raised in that environment, how did that influence the building of your relationship with the one who became your wife? I would tell you that it made all the difference in the world for yeah. us. Um, neither of us really think of love as being this thing you fall into um, <laughs> that makes it sound like a pit with walls <laughs> that are too steep and too high for you to climb out of it, True. which sounds terrible. It does, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, we always thought of it as this commitment that you make that's going to take a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of trust. And I think trust was the thing that we got out of our shared faith when we started dating. I could, I could see her relationship with God and it was, she was sufficient without me already right. um, yeah. as, as I was. And so there was never any need to, to rescue the other person. Yeah. I didn't have to save her, right? Um, she she would give her life to other, I mean, a lot of y'all know her, she mm -hmm. 
give her life to other people. She gave her life to God, and I, it filled me with this confidence that in our relationship, she would do the same for me. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't mean that you should only engage people if you, if you think that they are going to then engage you back. <laughs> you know, Reciprocity is a great social theory, but it's completely It is not biblical. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. No, not at all. It's not how God operates. So uh, we, we had this shared faith that gave us both a, a assuredness that the other one will, will live up to this responsibility they have to give their life to me as I give mine to them. Yeah, amen. And you guys do it well. You do put each other and other people first. It's seven and a half years. Married. Which is weird. I know. Because it does not seem like seven no. and a half years. That's, no. that's awesome. All right, now, the other thing, the uh, last thing that you and I had talked about that I'd like you to share, if you, if you would, is even as a young couple, only seven and a half years into marriage, you have faced some, some very serious pains, including the most horrible pain, the, the loss of a not-yet-born child. And what, I, and what I asked Greg, what I'll ask you today in front of our friends, how is it in that kind of pain that your family didn't fall apart? Because most do in tragedy. Why didn't yours? I mean, what do you, what do you want me to say? <laughs> I, how about uh, God is in control? Everything happens for a reason. God brings joy from pain, or grace is sufficient, or any other number of cliches that people tossed at us to try to invalidate our pain and make sure that they didn't have to deal with us while we were hurting. It's good. No. None of, none of that seems very real. When you're in your doctor's appointment and your sonographer says, hey, I can't find your baby's heartbeat this week. I mean, all you've got is pain. Yeah. There is nothing that is sufficient. No reason matters. It's all irrelevant. Everything just becomes a mess in an instant. Yeah. She was a wreck. I was too. I mean, there was other stuff going on that we'd been ignoring. Uh, there'd been this long unemployment stint right before yeah. that and left us with all these problems that we were entirely too nice to address and just get done, you know? So we were just digging these two separate pits and burying ourselves, and then this miscarriage comes along, and it's like the wall between the two of them just got collapsed, and we're just stuck in this hole together. These two broken people that had no idea that the other one was feeling just as bad um, didn't have anything left to give her or the church or our families, and most definitely not God. he really rolled up his sleeves and came down to us and got his hands dirty with our lives. He, uh, he brought everything out, and we had to deal with it, and it hurt, but there was a lot of healing there. Yeah. And I got my wife back, and God gave me back to her. And it turns out he does, he does find joy for you when you can't find it yourself. It's true. Yeah, all those cliches become true. They, they, it's funny. They are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when, when he says them. When he does it. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But no, it, it worked out for our good. Mm-hmm. 
Amen. He, uh, he showed us that the, the reason you're able to get past something, some tragedy when you're a Christian family, is because when you run out of things to give the other person, you still have this source you fall back on that seems like it's always filling you up slowly, but surely, and eventually you recover, and, and that lets you then be what you need to be for the other person again, but it, it's a long process, and it was Amen. painful. What, what happens in our Christian homes, uh, whether, whether it's one person in your home or 17, is that when tragedy hits, you find that you have a father. Whether you grew up with one or not, you have a father that is like Greg's dad when he was a kid. He gets dirty with you, and he sees you through, and he develops you, and it really is beautiful, it re isn't it? It really is. Can you give Greg a hand? That's very, very thoughtful of him to share. That, my friends, is what we need. Healthy families perpetuate blessings, even through, especially through tragedy. Strong families break negative cycles. It's hard work. It's honorable work, and it requires training. So with that in mind, let's, let's commit to some training. Take the card in your bulletin, please. Take the card in your bulletin. Got another card for you in this Imagine series. I know that the Holy Spirit of God is far beyond me and that you are far beyond me, and you have dozens, hundreds of applications to the text we've looked at that are beyond this. I'm not trying to limit you, but I want to share with you the four things that I think that occurred to me will make a real big difference in your life and in this world's lives, the people around you, all your extended family and all those people you influence. Here's four things. I'd like you to commit to one or more of these. All right, number one, I will have family Bible devotion slash discussion at least once a week. We're going to have a time, we're married, we're going to have a time in the Bible just for the two of us. We've got kiddos, a time for our family. I'm a single person. Take time in the scripture. Call up your brother you never talked to. Do it over Skype. That's awesome, all right? But spend some time in the scripture. Once a week is not in scripture, okay? This is just experience. But we found when our kids were little, for the bulk of families that have children in the home, we found once a week was just the right rhythm for us. More than that, it began to get a little trite, uh, less than that, and it lost some of its rhythm. I recommend once a week. Second thing, we will eat together with all phones and media off at least five times a week. No TV, no telephone, no radio, no Amazon.echo, nothing. It's all off. We tell Mr. Tesla thank you but no thank you for 30 minutes at a meal. And, 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 and don't write me back and say, well, we have different work schedules. We just never see each other. You can. You do. Make it happen. By God's grace and with his empowerment, make it happen. If, if your sweetheart is deployed right now, do it over Skype. But have a meal together where you're spending time, just you. I don't have time to give you all the research. It is overwhelming. I can't even describe to you the impact that is made on families when they eat together. You eat 21 meals a week. Okay, some of us eat a lot more than 21 meals a week, right? Just five. Third thing, I will engage with our weird relatives at least four times a year. I will call my strange Uncle George and talk to him uh, at my initiative. Nothing's wrong, nothing's going on. I'm just going to call him Uncle George. How are you? Oh, my goodness, it's Uncle George. 
because I know that Uncle George needs a healthy family. And even if he's weird as can be, I'm going to engage with him. I'm going to, on my own initiative, go spend time with my mother-in-law purposefully. Stop poking your husband. Purposefully <laughs> doing that, not making her initiate all the time, four times a year, all right? You wouldn't believe how many people came up after the first service and want to talk about what does engage mean. Can I just send them a text? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Probably a little more than that would be engage. Fourth thing, we will craft and live by a family vision. i give you a few examples. You can find a whole lot more online. You can talk to your friends in your life group. Some of the families around here have them, and that's a great idea. Here's what I'd like you to do. Some of these have convicted you. Something's hit you on here. Circle that. Keep this part. Tear off the perforated piece, okay? Tear this part off after you write what you're going to do on here. Put your name in what you're going to do on here. And here's why. Just like the other things we've done in this Imagine series, they're going to collect these, and they're going to do a list for me, and I make this commitment to you. For the next three years, I'm going to pray for you regularly. I'm going to pray for your family and for the commitments you've made to be a healthy family member. I'll pray for you. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for the chance to grow up together in Christ, and I do pray that we grow that we grow in grace and truth, praising you in how we live as family. And by the way, Lord, thank you that you choose to redeem all of us who know Jesus as Christ. And one of the images you use is you call us in this church your family. Thank you for our church family. It is a blessing. In Jesus' name.